you seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Stocks are lower at this hour with the Nasdaq feeling the brunt of the pain down around 2%. The most important hour of trading starts now. Welcome, everyone, to Closing Bell. I'm Sarah Eisen. Plenty of red on the screen for the Nasdaq 100 this hour. Take a look at some of the biggest losers in the index. Moderna, Lam Research, Marvell Technology, KLA Corp, Datadog. It's a combination of a lot of different tech sectors, chips and software getting hit particularly hard. We're giving back all of yesterday's gains and then some. And we are near session lows as we speak. Here are my top takeaways on some big stories today. Coal, the next price spike from the war. U.S. coal prices topping $100 a ton for the first time in 13 years. Look at Peabody Energy stocks springing back to life. Coal is next on Europe's list for new Russia sanctions. Russia supplies 18% of the world's coal exports. It's a big problem for electricity costs, and it's a step closer to Europe banning Russian oil and gas. That could be the next move. A big jump today in Treasury yields, hurting the home builders and the growth stocks. One of the catalysts, Fed Governor Lael Brainerd, who's usually pretty dovish, talking very hawkishly about shrinking the balance sheet as soon as the May meeting and shrinking it rapidly. It shows there are no doves left at the Fed. This Fed is going to move aggressively, not just on interest rates, but on the balance sheet, too. And the market may be underpricing the tightening risk. And Carnival and the cruise stocks are all rising today, despite weakness in other consumer names. Why? Well, last night, Carnival said it had the highest ever booking week in the company's history, a double-digit increase from the prior week. Hard to get too depressed about a recession when hearing from these travel companies. Booking Holdings last week told us they haven't seen any consumer pushback to higher prices and demand is off the charts. It's a big disconnect from what we're seeing in the market, which is pricing in an economic slowdown. Earnings commentary coming up will be key. Let's get to our top story, though. This hour, while tech takes a big leg lower, Twitter is getting another pop today. The CEO announcing this morning that the company is adding Elon Musk to its board of directors after the Tesla CEO took a 9.2 percent stake in that company. Musk joins former Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey, Salesforce co-CEO Brett Taylor, and the CEO on the board. Joining us now, Jeffrey Sonnenfeld from Yale School of Management and CNBC tech correspondent Steve Kovac. It's good to have you both here, Jeff. I, I think the question of the day is, as a board member, he's one of 12. He is the most vocal. He is the most active on Twitter. What kind of power does he have to make changes to the platform and to the company? You know, he adds a lot to the party here. Of course, there are three big concerns. The governance one you raised, I think, is the biggest one. But, of course, many people inside the company are worried about what the content character is going to be. And, of course, there's an upside here on product quality. That first one, on governance, this is a spectacular board. It's a board that knows how to work with entrepreneurs. It's a board where, you know, we might have helped, uh, hoped for a more reinvention of this company, and he'll, he'll bring that. But... Uh, but they've got the financial heavies there. The CEO, I think, is very promising. Parag is uh, pretty new on the job. They've got the best chief financial officer, one of the best in the industry, for sure, uh, you know, with Ned Siegel. So I think it's very encouraging. Just a lot of founders don't play nicely with others. Uh, so uh, Freud said society has changed by its discontents. And this is a guy who's, you know, never happy with the status quo. When Jack Dorsey had actually just tweeted that he's been trying to get him on the board for a long time. Steve, one thing he brings to the table that none of the other board members do not is 80 million Twitter followers. <laughs> and he's already out there putting out polls 
like, should Twitter have an edit button? Is he going to bring the results of the polls to the board meetings? How's this going to work? <laughs> yeah, that's right, sir. There's this running joke when you look at Twitter board members that they don't use Twitter. Uh, there's, you know, for years, everyone would look up and they'd have like two tweets on their profile or something. Uh, we know Elon is not like that. So that's for sure. Um, and just, you know, the company is telling me today, Sarah, they're finally talking, by the way. Um, and they're, they're, they're kind of tamping down these expectations that there's going to be like a systemic change within, you know, the free speech principles at Twitter and so on and so forth. Uh, they're really downplaying his role that the board is there for an advisory thing that includes Musk. And that, again, the management under CEO Ogwal are, are really handling the day-to-day decisions at Twitter. At the same time, they're kind of towing the line here saying, hey, we, we still value impartiality. We're still a neutral platform, um, and we're going to keep up with those principles despite all the criticism to the contrary that they've been getting, Sarah. Well, that relationship, Jeff, is going to be interesting between CEO and, and new board member Elon Musk, who has tweeted a meme of the CEO as Stalin before. What do we need to know about Elon Musk, Jeff? What are your thoughts of him as a CEO? I don't think he's been on a lot of boards besides Tesla. I think he's on Endeavor board, right? He hasn't made a lot of noise there. No, not made a lot of noise there. And uh, he has uh, he has not. Yeah, he's not served on a lot of boards. Surprisingly, he is not part of the the boring company. Uh, And uh, I guess he would make it a lot less boring where he were on that board. surprising that he but he's so you know scattered across so many other interests he doesn't really have the time and also as steve points out he spends an awful lot of time uh tweeting so he's got three thousand tweets a year and his following at 80 million is maybe perhaps half of that of barack obama but he's only got you know taylor swift and uh uh and lady gaga and a few others ahead of him in one of the top 10 uh certainly most followed people on would Twitter. you want jeff would you want elon musk on your board if you were running a company you're an entrepreneur, you would. Uh, and that's exactly why he put the founder of Oracle on his own board. They know how to defend creativity. If uh, Parag is not the founder, uh, it's a, it's a perhaps more of a mixed blessing. I think I can see why Jack Dorsey would have wanted him. The upside is, is pretty, uh, uh, po- uh, I think, encouraging here. The flamboyance that he went through in his tweeting history tapered off a little bit after 2018, after some of the trouble he got into on various fronts. And he's not really been out there when he talks about free speech. He's not a QAnon supporter and things. He got in, into some uh, controversy over, you know, downplaying the severity of the pandemic. But I, I think he went mute over that two, two years ago. So I'm actually quite encouraged that he can bring a lot of energy, a lot of creativity. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I, I would welcome him in a guarded way on this board. Stocks up 30 percent quickly, Steve. Investors have high hopes for him as part of this company. It, it had been lagging competitors like Snap. What what needs to get done to, to turn around the stock story and, and the narrative for, for advertisers? They just haven't been able to yeah. grow users. Yeah, there's a lot of things to unpack there, Sarah. It, this has been a criticism of Twitter for, geez, last 10 years or so. If you look at Twitter, you open up your phone and look at Twitter today, it looks largely like it did about five to 10 years ago. Uh, so th- that being said, over the last year or so, they've really ramped up product development, things like Spaces, which is that kind of live audio format. They're adding a subscription service. And this is all with the goal of doubling revenue within the next couple years. They've already stated that is their goal. This is before Jack Dorsey even left. So it's really going to have to ramp up this product uh, release cycle even more than they already have to reach those goals. And then I guess lean on Elon's advice uh, for how to do that. Advisory role. That's what they say about the board members taking it to a new level here, perhaps. Jeffrey Sonnenfeld, Steve Kovac, thank you both for joining me. Thanks.
Appreciate it. Dow's down 200 points right now. Up next, Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm joins us for a first on CNBC interview to talk about rising oil and gas prices and the administration's new effort to bring clean energy to schools just announced this week. You're watching Closing Bell on CNBC. Hey there, Brenda. It's Carol. Exactly. So which leg are we operating on? You mean arm. It's all connected. Asking the right question can greatly impact your future. Are you sure you're an orthopedist? Actually, I'm a Sagittarius. Especially when it comes to your finances. Do you have a question? Are you a certified financial planner? Yes, I'm a CFP professional. CFP professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. We are at session lows down 220 right now on the Dow. Let's take a look at today's stealth mover. It's Carvana, the online used car retailer, falling after RBC downgraded the stock to sector perform from outperform, slashed its price target, citing slowing sales growth. RBC also mentioning rising interest rates and inflation as factors that typically work against the used car market. Carvana shares now down nearly 50 percent on the year. Speaking of vehicles, electric school buses could be coming to your neighborhood. It's part of a new federal action plan aimed to update school infrastructure. Using funds from the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law and American Rescue Plan, the Department of Energy is launching a $500 million grant to improve school HVAC systems and help introduce electric buses. Joining me now, first on CNBC, U.S. Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm. Secretary Granholm, it's great to have you back on the show. Welcome. Thanks. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for having me on. So my biggest question on this is how those funds, the $500 million, will be used and, and allocated. There's obviously such great need here when it comes to updating public school classrooms, making them healthier and cleaner. How do you decide where it goes and how it gets dispersed? Yeah, that $500 million, as you mentioned, comes from the bipartisan infrastructure law. And the first step is to put out a request for information to get feedback from superintendents around the country about what they would do if they had what they would prioritize if they had to upgrade their schools. We want to prioritize, of course, schools that haven't already been updated, but particularly because schools right now spend the second biggest part of their their expenditures is on uh, of their utility bills. Uh, after salaries. So we want to bring that down. And if just replacing the H- HVAC or and lighting can save up to 30% in that utility bill. And of course, that money ends up going into the classroom. So we're really interested in bringing down costs and having the biggest bang for your buck where it can have the biggest impact. And also, we'd like to see superintendents tell us whether they would be interested in renewable energy installations as well. So, so is there going to be a private sector component here where you hire companies, for instance, to well, make electric 
vehicles, electric school buses, that sort of thing? The, the bus the bus component is a different, uh, different piece of it. That's actually a $5 billion component, which will be administered through the Department of Transportation. But clearly, because kids who travel, particularly rural areas, who travel long distances on buses, those windows are open, they're breathing diesel fumes, et cetera. We want to be able to reduce the cost of transportation, which, of course, electric buses do over the life of the vehicle and make the air safer and healthier. Um, the bottom line is the administration wants to actually leverage the private sector. So, for example, the energy uh, savings performance contracts that can be part of a superintendent's plan with a district to bring down those energy costs uh, are, is mm -hmm. a very welcome thing that we would love to see. Have to ask you about the latest on oil and gas and the war. Obviously, we are seeing more images of the horrible atrocities coming out of Ukraine. What do you think, Secretary Granholm, it's going to take to get the Europeans to sanction Russian oil and gas? Are, are they waiting for a chemical attack? Well, it certainly looks like they're having all of the, these discussions that are heading in that direction. I mean, you know, this attack in Buka was... I want to say it really flipped a page about the horror of what um, Putin is up to. And I think that it is causing our European allies to really reconsider what they are doing and where they are getting their fuel from. Of course, we're in a privileged position in the United States because we are not importing now any Russian oil or gas. And so we understand that the first priority is to keep your people warm in the winter and and uh, make sure that they have fuel. But uh, the conversations that we're having about diversifying and moving in new directions about energy efficiency, heat pumps, et cetera, particularly for those uh, countries that are very reliant, like Germany, on natural gas, are very encouraging. But we have to make sure uh, that we are also doing what we can to help our allies. And that's why the United States has been a, a recent supplier, certainly of liquefied natural gas. So all of those conversations well, uh are happening right now. Yeah, I want to ask about that. So, so we're going to supply them 15 BCM, but, but there are estimates that Russia supplies them with 160. That, that's obviously a huge gap. How, do, how does that get made up? Where does the extra supply yeah. come from? Yeah, I mean, so part of it is this notion of demand uh, reduction through efficiency strategy. Part of it is there are other suppliers, including Norway, for example, Qatar, for example. Um, we are actually exporting every molecule of natural gas that can be liquefied where there's a terminal to liquefy it. So we are we are really amping up. We just uh, granted two additional permits. There are two uh, separate facilities that are coming online by the end of next year, which will increase our uh, exports to 3 million BCF per day. So that's significant help. But those strategies are all happening in parallel. Uh, and the European Union is really front and center at making sure that particularly efforts with respect to demand reduction through efficiency mm. is at the front of their strategy. What about, you mentioned that, that these images that we've gotten out of Ukraine are, are sort of a new level of terrible that, that we're witnessing. What about secondary sanctions? Is that something you're looking at, putting sanctions on Indian or Chinese companies that are still buying oil from Russia? Yeah, I mean, I think the administration is looking at all sorts of uh, strategies, and I'm not going to speak for them about what the next level of uh, sanctions are. But I do think, I mean, you heard the president speaking uh, about Putin should be tried for war crimes, et cetera. I mean, there is just this sense that this is so beyond the pale, and especially if there are 
additional atrocities similar to what we've seen in Bukha that are about to be revealed. So we want to send, and, and this mm. is why the European allies have been so united. We've all been so united in saying enough is enough. I mean, I just, for example, just as one example, I just chaired the energy, excuse me, the uh, International Energy Agency's um, ministerial, and we will be, they will be going back for another collective action of releasing oil supplies because they just do not want to be in a position of using any Russian oil whatsoever. And we have to replace those Russian barrels that have been taken off the market. So we're also doing a big SPR release, which you guys announced last week, a million a day, you know, 100, 180 million for the next six months, That's I believe. Oil prices came down on that news. They're back above 101. Was it enough of an impact that you were going for in terms of the price I, action? Let me just be clear what we're going for. We are going for stabilization. And so we know because of those millions of barrels that have been taken off the market, we need to ramp up supply and so to replace those. And so our oil and gas companies and the um, Energy Information Agency has actually projected that we will see an additional ramp up in oil and gas supply to the tune of a million barrels per day by the end of this year. So this this release of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve is that amount, one million per day, until they can get up to at least replacing that a million. Now, it may be more. There seems to be some real interest in, uh, or at least some activity that would suggest that it might even be more than a million, but we're not in a position to say that yet. We're doing what we can to be able to stabilize the markets. Our allies in Europe are also looking at how much they can release, again, to stabilize the market. We know that at any given day, you're going to see volatility in the price. It's going to go up or down based on external factors. What we want to do is to make sure that supply and demand meet each other. Secretary Granholm, thank you so much for the information. We appreciate it. Thanks so much. Mm -hmm. Jennifer Granholm, Secretary of Energy. Let's give you a check on the markets because we are seeing session lows right now, down more than 220, 250 on the Dow. The NASDAQ is the big loser on the day, down two and a quarter percent. So we've given back all of yesterday's gains and then some now negative on the week. Small caps down 2%, S&P 500 down 1.2. Up next, Mike Santoli looking at the support levels for tech stocks in his dashboard today as the Nasdaq does sit at session lows. Later, Bruce Richards from Marathon Asset Management says there's a great disconnect in the market. He will join us with his warning for investors and what he's doing about it. And biotech having another rough session. Check out shares of Veer, one of the biggest movers to the downside in the last three hours. The FDA saying an antibody treatment developed by Veer and Glaxo no longer authorized to treat COVID-19 with data showing it's unlikely to be effective against this new BA2 subvariant, the stock down 12%. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. 
I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. The recession lows as we head into the close. Tech getting hit the hardest on 234 on the Dow. Joining us now, Marathon Asset Management Chairman and CEO Bruce Richards. Marathon is a global credit manager, $24 billion in assets under management. Bruce, good to have you back on the show. You, you've been talking about recession for a few months now. The bond market looks like it's catching up with the inversion of the, of the two-year, 10-year curve. Is that still where you think we're headed? And if so, are you a seller of the stock rallies that we've seen lately? So a few things to unpack right there. Number one is the 210 curve. I look at it, I say it's a negative 70 basis points because your one-year forward rates is a negative 70. We haven't seen that since the Volcker years. So take a look at those forward curves and then look at what happened to three-year notes. Three-year notes earlier, a few months ago, went from 28 base points to 270 where it is now, up nearly 250 basis points. So I ask you, when the Fed actually embarks upon 50 base points after 50 base points after 50 base points of hikes, because they want to get the Fed funds rate 3%, they want to do that in the next year. And when that happens, when they're selling down their balance sheet. Remember, they took the balance sheet from $4 trillion to $9 trillion in just the last couple of years. When they start to reverse that, they're going to be selling treasuries. They're going to be selling mortgage-backed securities. And the market won't be able to sustain that heavy selling. So right now, there's a big disconnect between what the bond market's starting to signal and where equity markets are priced. Because equity markets are only down 6% S&P on the year. Or earlier in the year, they were down 13%. So they have a lot more to go, is your answer. Downside on the stock market. I, I think of you as more of a credit guy, but are, are you are you shorting stocks at these levels? Well, we have some options on where um, um, we, we do, but we also think high yield is going to uh, be under a lot of pressure. You know, high yield bond spreads are measly. I say measly because it's in the 90th percentile of spread tightness. They're a measly 325 off of treasuries. That's it. And so I think they'll be at some point when stocks are down 20%, they'll be out beyond 500 spread. And so there's going to be a very different scenario for the markets when fi- financial con- conditions really tighten is when the Fed really raises rates, when the markets start to appreciate how much they have to sell down their balance sheet and what that means for treasuries hitting the marketplace and you know a flight to quality that happens as a result. So, so you think we'll see a recession when? You know, I'm calling for looking at the inversion of the curve now, calling for about a year and a bit out. So summer of 23 is when we should mark our calendars. It really feels like that market hasn't priced in any kind of earnings slowdown. Expectations haven't haven't budged. And, and I have to say, Bruce, some of the commentary I highlighted Carnival at the top of the hour out of companies. They're not seeing it. They don't see a slowdown yet. There's still a ton of pent up demand, especially for travel. Labor market is super strong. Wages are going up. It, it doesn't feel like we are on the brink of a recession. Well, you'll see goods start to really soften. You'll see services, particularly travel-related services, because people have been locked up for so long, start to accelerate. And so you'll see a rebalancing within. But what I'm talking about is overall S&P earnings, which would be growing mid-teens, uh, expected to come into this year growing around 8%, will close the year with growth rates of only about 4%. And... What you'll see are the CEOs, while they exceed last quarter's earnings, you'll start to see forecasts start to, um, you know, uh, forecast lower um, earnings going forward. And so what that means, 
is cost pressures, because inflation is running 8%, cost pressures will really start to hit earnings. And we're seeing that already in the margins of companies as 40% margins become 30% margins when you look out over the next 12 months. Mm. And we're seeing the, um, the guidance there, and we're seeing that in the early numbers that we're seeing from, you know, you can look at companies that, like Carvana's been in the news today, Arts has been in the yep, news. Craft, because, you know, um, you know, people are going down in brand because food costs are going up so high. So they're going to in-store brands as opposed to brand label. So we're seeing that across the board. But mostly it's the consumer weakening because wages are getting eaten up by inflation and discretionary spending is starting to decline. And so it's going to be led by consumer consumption and a buyer strike um, for mm. prices from this point going forward um, for anything that's discretionary. It's quite a warning. Bruce, w- want to have you back on soon. We've got to leave it there. But we've got to talk about China as well. I know I think you're still bullish there. Bruce Richards, a marathon, a warning of a recession. Pretty dire circumstance there for the market. Here's where we stand, by the way. We are at session lows, and we've taken another leg lower here, down 276 or so on the Dow, down 2.3% on the NASDAQ. Bruce Richards not helping sentiment there. Uh, We are seeing pretty much uh, a lot of the sectors under pressure at this moment. What's holding up? Utilities, real estate, and consumer staples, all the defensive ones. A big downgrade of UPS dragging down transportation stocks today. Find out what's behind that call and whether it could mean more trouble for the broader group later on Closing Bell. The sell-off been picking up steam all hour long. We just hit down 300 on the Dow, down 290 right now. Salesforce is the biggest weight, followed by Boeing, Disney, and Intel. United Health, J&J, and McDonald's, Staples, holding up best. We're going to continue to follow this sell-off, hit some of the big moving names, especially the NASDAQ, which is down more than 2% in the market zone next. Down 302 now on the Dow. We've got 19 minutes left in the trading day. We are now in the closing bell market zone. CNBC senior markets commentator Mike Santoli here to break down the crucial moments of the trading day. Plus, Christina Partsinevelos here with a big drop in chip stocks. Mizuho's Dan Dolov on the fallout in fintech and much more. Stocks are selling off for the final hour of trade. The Nasdaq leading the declines down more than 2% on track for its worst day in more than four weeks. And Mike now down half a percent. On the week. So so this big spurt that we saw in the past few weeks, a lot of people say it was technical in nature. It was about positioning. We're yep. now down 12 and percent off the highs on the Nasdaq. Does, it, does this mean that stocks are still vulnerable to rising rates and all the other fears out there fundamentally? We're absolutely still vulnerable to real fast moves in rates like we did see over the course of the day today. Uh, Still vulnerable to the psychology, which is there for a good reason, that we are seeing signs of being late in a cycle and therefore not a lot of runway uh, for for rates to go up or for the Fed to act very aggressively without bringing up at least the possibility for a big slowdown. So I think we're still, you know, in that dynamic, probably will be for a while. But uh, we were up about 10 percent from the lows. 
if we closed here, this would be the third 1% daily decline for the S&P along the way on that 10% rally, but they've only just been these one-day isolated uh, sort of gut checks. We'll see if that continues on from here, but clearly we got up to a level, and we've been saying this for days, that's right on the borderline between it's either the maximum bear market rally or it's a resumption of the uptrend. And so, you know, we'll see after today what it looks like. What did you think about what, what Bruce Richards just said, a marathon asset management, that, that he is seller of the rally, he's, he's doing it with options, short, shorting stocks, and that there's a big disconnect between the stock market and the bond market on recession, and the stock market is way behind. I would say that I would, when there's an apparent disagreement between what the Treasury market might be saying in terms of the yield curve uh, and what equities seem to be saying, I look to the credit markets because that's what mediates the two, those two markets, equities and treasuries. And the credit markets are not really in any kind of recessionary panic right now. They're not at the strongest levels. There's sort of some softness in pockets of it, but it's not something that says to me that, you know, equities have their head in the sand and they haven't figured out that we're headed, uh, you know, right into a downturn. Down about two, we've recovered a little, down 250 or so on the Dow. Tech is the worst performing sector today. Chip makers and semiconductor equipment makers, hardest hit right now in the industry, with the group on pace for its worst day in nearly a month. Christina Partzinevelos joins us. Christina, we've seen some bullish outlooks from chip companies recently. So is that not resonating? No, it's not, because a lot of investors right now are worried about the immediate pain points and whether this growth trajectory can sustain itself. For example, you've got COVID lockdowns happening in China, weighing on a lot of the supply chain. You have, of course, the cyclical environment that's hitting all of tech, so uh, rising interest rates and semiconductors falls into that category. And then you also have, of course, a trend weakness in handsets, weakness in PCs. AMD has great exposure to PCs. And so those are just three main points that a lot of investors are weighing right now. Ford, for example, announcing today that the chip shortage is still hurting them. And yet you have a lot of companies, ADI, for example, they had an investor day today and they were extremely bullish. They actually raised their long-term revenue forecast to from a mid-single digit to 7 to 10% range. So you have this divide that's going on between the investors and the bearishness tone and then the management that's relatively bullish. And I'll end with just this one quote that stood out to me from Piper Sandler. Uh, they said, quote, we have not seen such bearishness since the trade war with China in 2018 and 2019. And analog uh, is one example. The stock is down over 2% right now. The index, though, also down over 4%. What are we expecting to hear from the companies? We got a little bit of a tell with Micron. I thought that was pretty bullish, Christina, yeah. as far as the, the fundamentals still being very much intact and, the, and cycles like 5G still in big growth phases. Right. But are, are those cycles that something would happen within the immediate term within this year or in the beginning, beginning of 2023? That's the big question. So a lot of these companies, Micron, uh, AMD, they talk about the push to data centers. We're going to be needing a lot more storage. They're going to be focusing on NAND or uh, you know other products that are going to be in the data center. But that's something that is still going to take a little bit of time to transition, right? And so that's something that could be weighing on the sector in the immediate hmm. term. Christina Partzinevelos, Christina, thank you. We've got a news alert here on Spirit Airlines. Phil LeBeau has it for us. Phil. Sarah, this is an interesting move. JetBlue, according to the New York Times, has made a bid to buy Spirit Airways uh, for a deal that would be the purchase price would be $3.6 billion. Now, you might be saying to yourself, wait a second, isn't Spirit already in a merger? 
You bet. Spirit and Frontier have already agreed to merger and or merge, so that is an agreement that would have to be unwound if Spirit were to say, yes, we would like to be acquired by JetBlue. So unclear exactly how this would transpire or what this means, but there is already an agreement between Frontier and Spirit to merge. Would Spirit unwind that agreement in order to uh, talk with JetBlue, accept JetBlue's offer, remains to be seen. We have calls out to uh, all the principals involved in this, but certainly an interesting move by JetBlue, according to the New York, the New York Times, making a bid for Spirit for $3.6 billion. Sarah? The stock is spiking up more than 20%. So just to be clear, Phil, I don't know if there's any way to tell this. Is it a better deal? Is it a better match? Is it a better strategic fit? For, for Spirit to go with JetBlue or for Spirit to go with Frontier? Well, well, yeah, remember, Frontier, uh, which is uh, in the merger with Spirit, there's a, a, a pretty nice fit between those two airlines in terms of low-cost carriers. There's not a ton of overlap regarding their route structure. There's not a huge amount of overlap between JetBlue and Spirit, though. They both have big presence in Florida, so that certainly would be an obstacle that might have to be overcome. Unclear exactly how this matches up dollar for dollar versus the merger with uh, frontier. But again, remember, both the boards of Spirit and Frontier have already approved that merger. So they would have to, right. Spirit's board would have to undo that agreement in order to start entertaining this offer from JetBlue. Spirit shares are, are halted up at those high levels. Frontier's a little higher. JetBlue down almost 7% on this news. Phil, thank you very much. Let us know if you've get, gotten anything more here. Let's get more on the tech sell-off, though. In the meantime, Yigal Arunian, Managing Director of Wedbush Securities, joins us now. He covers names like Alphabet, Twitter, Facebook, which are all getting hit again after they've, they've already, a lot of them have already been hit pretty hard on, on this prospect of, of rising rates, Yigal. Are you a buyer on some of the valuations right now, or do you sell because the macro noise is, is still there and it's still proving to be pretty vulnerable for this group? Sure. Look, I would expect to continue to see some vulnerability, um, you know, as we kind of move throughout throughout the next couple of months. Um, I, I am a buyer of of strength and high quality names. Um, with, with with a lot of the valuations we're seeing, a lot of names are trading at, at trough valuations, and I think you know the the macro is certainly uh, off the highs that we've seen over the past couple of years, but it's also holding up still relatively well. Um, you know that can certainly move in you know, the direction with if rates keep going higher and 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 the you know and and the macro weakens especially around the consumer, uh, but so far we're seeing still pretty solid solid health in in a lot of pockets um, and a lot of valuations that I think you can consider pretty attractive right now. Like what? Which one do you like the best? So if I think about um, that combination of highest quality with uh, most attractive valuations. Um, you know, I would put Alphabet up there, um, right up near the top. Definitely uh, one of the, the highest quality names we cover. I think still um, the fundamentals there are in pretty good shape. Um, you know, you can kind of go further down down the curve with, with names that might be a little bit riskier, but the valuation there is even more attractive. Um, staying within that digital ad space, you know, Pinterest is kind of right up there. Um, you know, we cover Shopify, that valuations come in um, quite materially consider them a best-in-class um, e-commerce operator. Um, so there are a lot of high-quality companies with uh, valuations that um, if the fundamentals improve a little bit, um, you know, think about where we are right now 
we should start to see reaccelerating growth um, as we lap the toughest uh, comp here in 1Q for most of these companies. Some reaccelerating growth, the macro holds up a little bit better, estimates can, can move up again. Uh, those that's the kind of recipe you need for for valuations to to re-rate and expand and i think there's a lot of those within this tech pocket but not twitter you you still don't like it you're still neutral even even with elon musk now as the biggest shareholder and a board member yeah again go go back to to the fundamentals and so you know elon musk coming on being uh, on the board i think net net that's a positive um you know but where his focus has been you know, around the free speech and, um, you know, what what should be acceptable and what shouldn't be acceptable on Twitter. Um, you know, that that's fine. You know, kind of good conversation. But, you know, kind of think about what's going to drive Twitter forward here. You know, what what should drive the valuation and, and the stock? Um, and that's user growth and, and it's better monetization. Now, is, is Elon Musk coming onto the board of Twitter going to drive better, better user growth? Is debate around free speech going to drive uh, better user growth? over the next couple of years for Twitter. Um, I think that that's debatable and there's a lot a, a lot that we need to see to get more comfortable with that. It's so interesting. Brent Thiel yesterday also, not, analysts not impressed by Elon Musk. Thank you, Egal. Good to talk to you, Egal Arunian. Coinbase is getting clobbered right now. Mizuho lowering its price target to 190. The firm says Coinbase's decision to launch its NFT marketplace is questionable especially as NFT hype is waning. Overall, the stocks in the fintech space are sinking today across the board. PayPal, Block, Affirm, all significantly lower. Joining us now, Dan Doleff, the Mizuho America senior analyst who made the call. On, on Coinbase in particular, I'm, I'm curious about it, Dan, because Bitcoin has actually held up a little bit better lately than, than some of the high-growth tech stocks. Yeah, thanks why, for having why me again did, on the Why show, did you man. make that call? Well, the call is basically on, not on Bitcoin, the call today is actually on them going all in on NFT and spending hundreds of millions of dollars on NFTs, right when NFTs was at the peak. And if you look at NFTs today versus, say, you know, three months ago, the hype around NFT has come down. This was like maybe like a one-trick pony that was very, very strong in January, February. That's when they made the investment. Uh, they're spending four to five billion dollars on technology and GNA this year. Big part of it is going to be on on employee. They're hiring six thousand employees, and they're going all into NFTs. And I think this is, you know, just kind of a me too action. Um, they don't have like a huge competitive advantage in NFTs, and and the hype around NFTs is going away. So I think it's a it's a mistake. And remember, if they go towards the low end of their um, MTUs or their monthly uh, actives this year, they're not going to be profitable. They're going to be losing five hundred million dollars on an adjusted EBITDA basis. So it's the wrong time to make this bet, in my view. But what about their core business and, and the scale and sort of first mover advantage that they've built there? What's that worth? I agree. So they have an enormous uh, first mover advantage and they're actually gaining share in Bitcoin. If you look at sort of their share of Bitcoin, while it's very small, it's about 2% on a global basis, they're gaining share. But if you think about kind of the, the moat of this business, if you look at institutional take rates, institutional yields, what institutions pay to, to trade Bitcoin, that's about two to three basis points, right? It's very, very small. Consumers pay over 100. So I think what you'll see at the end of, you know, at the end of days is that consumer yields are going to, uh, the spreads are going to shrink and they're going to be in line with the institutional mm -hmm. yield. So I expect a convergence and a and pressure on their revenues over time. So I, I don't like their business model. I don't think it's sustainable over a long period of time. All the fintechs are under pressure today. You have that block 
cash app investigation, a former employee downloading customer information. But but clearly the group has been hit hard. There are concerns about a consumer slowdown. Which valuation do you think has, has gotten the cheapest in the group? I still like Square the most. I mean, especially on a day like today where they've had, a, you know, that, that, you know, security breach, which I don't think is going to be remembered, you know, in a week or two weeks. The fundamental the, the work that we've done here shows you that the cash app could be 20% above where consensus estimates are today. People completely don't understand what they're going to do with Afterpay and Cash App and the seller business, the point of sale, combining the trio and creating like their own ecosystem. So I think Square is, you know, light years uh, above and beyond everyone else in the ecosystem. That's the one I'm most bullish on. And that's the one I see actually working, especially as we near the analyst day on May 18th. So I, I view this as a huge catalyst. I would buy more Square today. Square, which is actually block, yeah, which is down 6% and down about 15% for the year. Dan, thank you, Dan Dolev. Let's thank turn you. now to the transport stocks having another rough day, have been hit hard lately. Shares of UPS falling after Wolf Research downgraded that stock to peer perform from outperform. The firm expects to see slowing volume trends, which could lead to slower pricing later this year. The whole sector under pressure, trading uh, lower right now. And let's bring in Frank Holland. And Frank, Leading indicator for recession, or, or at least for the economy, typically that's how we view the, the transports. There's also talk of a freight recession. What can you tell us about that? Well, yeah. Um, number one, sir, the, it cannot be overstated that freight rates have declined. They've, they've fallen very hard, about 80 percent decline in their growth from the start of February to the start of April. That was a real catalyst for the UPS downgrade today. Uh, Wolf Research basically saying they're losing a lot of their pricing power. But that's not completely a surprise. Um, all of our lives have shifted pretty dramatically. Um, for example, back in January, we saw a high of the container ships at the Port of L.A. and Long Beach, 109 ships. It's down 60 percent from that from that level right now. Again, a dramatic shift. But all of our lives have shifted. We're not wearing masks. We're going out and eating at restaurants more and we're shopping in stores more. We're not ordering online just as much as we have before. It was kind of expected that freight rates would normalize. But this is kind of the new normal. They've normalized back to 2021 levels. But if you look at the comparison of pre-pandemic, they're about 50 percent higher than they were pre-pandemic. Now, some of this decline in rates is also declining in volume, partly caused by the shutdown of the Shenzhen port in China. We talked about that a few weeks ago, third largest port in the world shut down due to COVID. That reduced a lot of the uh, the traffic coming out of there, and it came right on the heels of Lunar New Year. That's the time in Asia when production slows down, period. You put those two together, you're just going to have a lot less volume coming out of Asia, which really fuels the U.S. freight economy. Coming up in a few days, we're going to get a lot of answers about what's really going on. You might hear a lot of analysts and other people talk about record low inventory in U.S. retail stores. Well, that's true on paper, at least that number that people mm. get from the St. Louis Fed. That's lagging by two months. So the number that we got last month was actually for January. Coming up next week, we're going to get the, the cash freight report, which will give us a, a better indication of where the freight market is. Then on April 14th, we're going to get the St. Louis Fed's uh, report for February that will give us a sense of the inventory levels in February. So if we see those inventory levels tick up, well, you, there might be warranted concern about a freight recession or freight rates falling or continuing to fall. If we see them stay at, at what could be historically low levels, well, maybe it's overblown. Got it. Frank Holland, we'll look for it.
Thank you very much. We've got two minutes to go here in the trading day. Mike, what are you seeing in the market internals? Down 306, down 314 now on the Dow. It's pretty much been a deterioration all hour. Yeah, been a steady slide uh, and actually relatively weak on the internally as well. Small caps underperforming. That often means breadth is negative. And you see right there, more than three to one declining to advancing volume. That's been a, a real erosion since just a couple of hours ago. Want to take a look at the U.S. dollar index. Uh, we had that uh, Lael Brainerd, uh, Fed governor, points about reducing the Fed balance sheet as well as aggressive rate hikes. That's sort of a tightening noise. And you see the dollar index right back up near that 100 mark. It's a two-year chart. So right back near April of, uh, of 2020 levels at that point. The volatility index now has bounced relatively hard above 21 again. It's still in this sort of short-term uptrend if you look at those lows from late last year. So still not any kind of all-clear signal, but much more relaxed than we had been uh, just a few weeks ago, Sarah. As we head into the close, what's working today? Utilities, healthcare, consumer staples and real estate. Those are the sectors that are positive in the S&P 500. Not enough to lift the overall index, which is down 1.3 percent when you've got big heavy groups like consumer discretionary technology and communication services all lower in, in industrials, energy, materials and financials. Also not having a great day. Higher yields today has been a big theme. That's pressuring technology stocks. Apple, Tesla, NVIDIA, Amazon, Microsoft, Alphabet, all under pressure. It's why you're seeing a 2.3% slide in the NASDAQ right now. Small caps also given up about 2% or so. The Dow Jones Industrial Average down about 300 points here into the close. Biggest weight on the Dow Salesforce as the growth trade gets hit today on the back of rising rates. It's a reversal of what we've seen yesterday and what we've seen in the coming weeks, but pretty much what we saw in the first quarter of this year, earlier, that is. That does it for me in Closing Bell. Have a good evening. We'll send it into overtime with Scott Wapner. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash.